Hi, everyone. My name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosley. Welcome to episode 92 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we are speaking with Professor Jerry Radcliffe. Special topics highlighted in this episode include evidence-based policing, intelligence, lead policing, and dissemination of research. Jerry Radcliffe is a professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Temple University. He is also a former British police officer. He's a criminal justice professor and host of the popular Reducing Crime podcast. After an ice climbing accident ended a decade-long career with London's Metropolitan Police, he earned a first-class honors degree and a PhD from the University of Nottingham. He has published over 90 research articles and nine books, including most recently Reducing Crime and Companion for Police Leaders. Radcliffe has been a research advisor to the FBI and the Philadelphia Police Commissioner, an instructor for the ATF Intelligence Academy, and he is a member of the FBI Law Enforcement Education and Training Council. So with that being said, let's bring Jerry in. Thank you for joining us today, Jerry. We are very excited to talk to you today. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. Nice to see you. All right. So we want to start off by talking about some of the stuff you've, you've written a few books. And if this wasn't just a one hour-ish long podcast, we'd like to talk to you about all of them. But unfortunately, we can't. Yeah, that's, <laughs> a, a no. that's, a, that's already a level of masochism that nobody else has even dreamed about. So, yeah. Even I'm like, really? Yeah, there's a couple of those books I've that about, but yeah, good for you. And also because I'm kind of really just mostly familiar with intelligence-led policing and evidence-based policing, mostly because I, these are some of the things that I talk about with my students in our Intro to Criminal Justice class. And so I want to actually start with intelligence-led policing. And so the first big broad question is, what is intelligence-led policing and is it the same thing as like hotspot policing or predictive policing? Like, what are we talking about here? Okay, so that's the question that's going to dominate the rest of the podcast, which is going to end up <laughs> talking about that. Look, these things continue to merge and change. It, you know, when intelligence-led policing was first, people were first thinking about it and, and discussing it, it was on the back of a major crime surge that had taken place in the 1980s and the, the early 1990s. And... The police were basically running around chasing crime and not really getting out in front of it. And reactive policing really doesn't do a very good job of protecting the community and protecting the public. So they're having discussions about, well, look, there are the small tail of the distribution. Now, we shouldn't be talking about statistics, but there are a small group of people who are a little excessive in terms of their criminality. And there are a small group of people who frankly, from a policing perspective, probably deserve the police's love and attention to do something about the level of crime, their disproportionate impact on communities. And it was a desire to get back and be more proactive and really be focused on the people who are causing the most harm to the community, be a little bit more precise than that. We know that a lot of crime is committed by opportunists, but there are also specialist offenders who really take it as, as almost as their living. So it was more about using analysis and criminal intelligence to direct police investigations. And it's not as much just about helping an investigation get enough evidence to criminally prosecute somebody, but really also thinking about where the priorities should be, especially because we know that a small group of, for example, repeat victims disproportionately victimize. If we can do something to reduce their victimization, there are serious repeat offenders who deserve being looked at. 
there are organized crime and criminal groups. And I know you've both been involved in gang research at one part of it. But from the front end, from the policing perspective, we have a couple of decades of research that shows that gang involvement increases your offending, it increases the violence of your offending, it increases the proclivity of your offending, and your criminal careers are longer. So there's definitely work there that needs to be done. And finally, increasingly recently, it's also been about understanding who and what are causing crime hotspots. So it's really not just an investigative aid, but it's thinking about directing limited investigative resources to the places and the people that the hot places and the hot times and people that really deserve that level of attention. So because it also involves a little bit of hotspots, I guess there's an overlap there with hotspots policing. Hotspots policing has been studied for 20, 30 years. And there's a wealth of research evidence that finds when police doesn't, and in varying different ways, but when police concentrate their efforts and the energies where crime is most heavily concentrated, they can have an impact on reducing crime. Yeah, so predictive policing, predictive policing kind of relates to that. It was a, it became a thing around about 2003, 2005, and it was a thing for a few years. I think it's kind of started, the enthusiasm for it starting to wane a little bit, because as we understand more and more about crime hotspots, they can be driven by short-term fluctuations in what's going on in the neighborhood and the community, but if a lot of it is long-term problems. I mean, I go to a lot of police meetings, I go to a lot of Comstat meetings, police have got maps of crime and they're showing this is what happened last week or this was what happened the week before. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I would really like to see the map that shows where it's been a continual problem for the last five years, because those are the areas that really we should be trying to help the community the most there. So intelligence-led policing then is kind of, would you say it's a big, broad umbrella term? And then you have these other elements underneath it, like hotspots policing? and Yes and no. I think I prefer more to think about them as Venn diagrams where it's a relatively broad term, but it takes pieces of other areas that could probably help direct it. When I wrote the book, Intelligence-Led Policing, it was first published, I think, back in 2007. I think I pretty much came up with one of the first definitions of it, actually used a lot of subject matter experts. But I'm thinking, well, if I'm coming up with a definition, that's definitely not a good sign. I'm just an academic in the United States. But I think when people hear about it, they get a little concerned. They hear the word intelligence and they think it's all about surveillance teams and wiretaps and everybody's getting excited about the wire. And, you know, it feeds into the conspiracy theorists' delight. It's like, no, Dwayne, living in a trailer in the middle of Iowa, we're not <laughs> listening in on your every phone call conversation. You're just not that exciting. So we, it's got that from the military and from the national security perspective. It's got that kind of a Gucci word of intelligence. But it's really about using data and knowledge about the criminal environment to best choose the priorities for police services and police departments that have limited resources, you know, and how to use them in a way that seems proportionate for the problem. You know, Dwayne in his, you know, who might have a still and be illegally cooking up a little bit of alcohol in the back of his trailer. No, we're not going to have a drone and a surveillance team and any of that kind of stuff coming after you. You're just not that exciting. <laughs> So some sense of proportionality has to flow into all of this stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how some of these terms elicit reactions. Like I know like when like some people hear like predictive policing, like the first thing that comes to mind is like minority report. <laughs> Which was a great movie, you know, and, and I enjoyed it like everybody else. Had I known how much of a pain in the backside it was going to be because it's the obligatory <laughs> reference everybody comes up with when they mention yeah. predictive policing. But you know, we've looked at predictive policing in some of the work that I've published with my colleague, 
uh, Ralph Taylor a lot in some of the work. We haven't got around to publishing because we keep getting excited by new and interesting things that distract us. But we've looked at the predictability of crime. And while we find a portion of it can be predicted by short-term fluctuations in what's going on in and around areas, overwhelmingly the majority of the best place to look for where crime is is where it's been before. And so if you look for long-term crime hotspots, there's a reason that there, there's an opportunity that's being exploited by offenders. It's something about the behavior of offenders. It's something about the behavior of the victims. It's something about the place. And generally, those things don't change that much over time, certainly not over weeks and months. So long-term crime hotspots really continue to be the places where I think we need to pay most attention because that's where the opportunity structure is. So there's a section at the beginning of your book, Intelligence-Led Policing, that is titled Reimagining the Police. And this is something Jose and I were talking about that, you know, this is an idea that seems to be very popular lately. You know, how do we reimagine the police? What does that mean? What is their role in society? And so we are just curious what exactly reimagining the police is or what has it looked like across time, at least in your opinion? And maybe this is, you know, everyone would have a little bit of a different answer, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you guys can figure out the answer, please do let me know. I'm, I'm happy to hand over the entire podcast episode to you if you figure that one out. I'm just in the process now of starting to draft a third edition of the book, and I'm going through the section of how much it's changed in the last seven or eight years since I wrote the second edition. And, you know, there's clearly a first phase where we had to really think about policing smarter. And that really took place early 1990s. There was what's called a demand gap. So if we go back to the 1960s and we track how many more police officers there are in the United States from the 1960, by the time we hit the early 1990s, there were about 60% more police officers on the streets of the United States. Crime change from 1960 to the mid-1990s, violence increased by over 300%. So there was this big gap between the available resources that used to be probably fine and the crime problem that had to be dealt with. And so it's in the 1980s and the 1990s, certainly the 70s, but really into the 80s and the 90s, you see so much of this innovation coming up. You see the growth of community policing. You see the growth of problem-oriented policing and Herman Goldstein's work, Mike Scott and folks like that. You see in the UK, starting in the UK with the growth of intelligence-led policing, and then that became a thing after 9-11 in the United States. So you see this whole range of innovation because basically in the, by the 1990s, crime was considered by many to be sort of out of control and the available resources just weren't there to do it. So it wasn't about having more resources. It was about working smarter. It, it, and it's funny because I feel like I've lived through a part of this because I ran away from home when I was 17 and joined the Metropolitan Police as a young cadet when I was 17 years old. And it was in 1984. So I'm now entering my depressingly 40th year involved in policing in some fashion. And I did 11 years as a sworn officer right through that period. So it's interesting to see how things have changed. Back when I started, we had no spatial analysis. No, we had pins in maps. There was no hotspots policing. We did random patrol. And we did all the things that we now know, you know weren't great. So there was only really one way to go, and that was to improve. So at least I think we've come some way in that. But then you know, there's a second phase. And I think the reality is there's a second phase and it started to some degree with Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown, but it certainly kicked off with the awful murder of George Floyd. 
And so the, where we, people are reimagining policing now, it's less about being smart, but it's about, we're hearing about defund and de-policing alternative response models, which possibly have some support. I'm doing some work in that right now with the transit police in Philadelphia. That is driving a lot of the challenges for policing. So it continues to be a difficult time in policing. We know that it's good to get out ahead. We know there's research evidence says that prioritizing work on gangs, on serious repeat offenders can actually reduce their offending. But police departments are smaller, they're hemorrhaging experience, they have retention problems, they've got loss of personnel, and you need experience to be able to run and manage complicated investigations. A good example is in the UK, in the United Kingdom, one of my podcast guests was telling me that it registered informants that the police use to understand very difficult to penetrate criminal or organized crime groups are down to a fraction of where they were a decade ago. So there's just a, there's just a loss of experience to do some of this work. So we definitely, we continue to be in phases. It's constant change, right? That's the only constant. Yes. And so with this second movement then that really kicked off for sure after George Floyd, would you say that intelligence-led policing is still popular in policing today? Or is there a movement away from it? Or is it just changing in the nature it's being done or thought about? That's a really good question. I think there's always going to be change. And I think police departments, as I say, are struggling right now, where some of these investigations can be time-consuming. There's pros and cons to this. On the pro side, they're much more focused. So if you're thinking about rather than just going into a neighborhood and pedestrian stopping and searching, everybody in the neighborhood tried to be more focused about who are the serious repeat offenders who we should be focusing on. And it's much more precise and ideally has less of a collateral impact on the community, which is good. The downside is people are much more reticent just about policing generally at this point in time. And as I say, police departments really just struggling with the personnel. Most of the big police departments are down hundreds and hundreds of officers. And at some point, that has to give. And at some point, you have to choose where you're going to invest your resources. So in investigations, that's fine. You can do that. Then at that point, you're starting to lose people who are out patrolling the streets doing the proactive work. And do you want to do proactive prevention on the streets? Or do you want to improve your reactive investigation after there's been a crime? Mm -hmm. And I work a lot with policymakers and they struggle with this because they know the benefits of both, but they have to provide a service to the public with very limited tools. Yeah, sounds very complicated. Oh, yeah. So, I, mean, I, I sit in rooms with people who have to make really difficult decisions and I don't envy them in the slightest. No, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> As Thomas Sewell said, you know, there are no solutions. There are just trade-offs. And that, you know, you're making decisions in these rooms or you're trying to help people make decisions in these rooms. They're going to have life or death impacts. If you choose to prioritize in one area, the very nature of that, you're taking away policing resources from other places. And that could create criminal opportunities and people can get hurt. So the people that are making these decisions, we shouldn't underestimate the amount of challenge and thought that they often put into it. Yeah, that's a really good point because you see on social media, like so-and-so said this or did this, and then you always have someone in an uproar, but, you know, take a step back, think about all of the challenges and the thought that has to go into those difficult decisions. So, yeah. And, and it's really easy to be a keyboard warrior, isn't it? 
I think there are times when people, you know, I've also been in meetings, I'll be honest, where people have made really dumb decisions and not listened to advice. So a piece of all of this is also nobody should get a blanket pass. But for those people that, you know, really putting a lot of thought and effort into understanding fine problems, using intelligence, using data and analysis to make the best decisions they can. I'm lean towards giving them the benefit of the doubt. And that's really hard to ask these days because policing mm -hmm. is really not a very popular area. And the public these days, and I think to some degree, people in criminology and the public and commentators and activists generally have zero tolerance for genuine mistakes. And when you're dealing with decisions that can chop and change on an instant on the street, I tend to give people at least the benefit of the doubt because I'm not the one in the arena having to make these decisions and having to stand by them, and they can go wrong. You know, police chiefs can, it's often said that many police chiefs are one bad shooting away from unemployment. And so their career is on the line when they're making decisions about sending police officers to a high crime area. Police officer gets involved in a split second decision, makes a poor decision in a nanosecond, it goes wrong, and half a dozen people are losing their jobs. So spending, you know, there are two areas where I think criminologists would benefit from it, spending more time on the streets and it's spending a bit more time spending, you know, with decision makers who have to make some of these really difficult decisions. Yeah, I think people really underestimate how hard some of these things are. Like, it's easy to be like, well, what I would do is X, Y and Z. And we're just going to start from scratch and rebuild everything. And sometimes I read these suggestions that people have. I'm like. Oh, yeah, because no one in the history of mankind ever thought about this solution that you just proposed. And maybe just maybe it's not feasible for who knows how many reasons, right? Like people seem to forget that like you can't just wish things or like type things into existence. Yeah. And if they were that much of an expert, then I don't see them joining up. Yeah. yeah. So kind of going back to intelligence led policing for a little bit, one, you know, obviously like pretty much anything in policing, it's drawn a lot of criticism. And some people argue that it has led to over-policing of minority neighborhoods or that there's issues with intelligence-led policing being unreliable because the people entering the data are still human. And so there's human error and bias that's introduced in the data. And so we just wanted to get your thoughts and really how would you respond to the criticisms of intelligence-led policing? Yeah, some of them are justified and some of them I think are unreasonable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, some of these databases are not going to be 100% reliable. It would be great if they were. You always work in a limited information environment, you know, targeting serious repeat offenders. Well, you know, guess what? Some of the really good people who are involved in you know, transnational organized crime don't actually like to advertise their activities and tell the police exactly what they're up to. So a lot of it is you know, trying to make the best decisions that I think police officers try to do so based on limited information. When the question comes down around bias, I always find this a little bit fascinating. You know, we say, well, should we do predictive policing where a computer software program that is able to look at all the reported crime from the community is able to suggest these are the areas where you seem to have crime problems? Okay, well, that might have bias, but compared to what? And that's the key question. What is the level of bias of this? compared to the alternative. And often the alternative is a sergeant who spends most of his or her time in the police station, never spends any time on the streets, never does any crime reports, just picking where they think what's going on. Now that has inherent biases through it left, right and center. So when we talk about the bias in the system, we have to think, well, bias compared 
to what? Now, you can, of course, make some rookie errors looking at crime systems. If you're sending police to areas that are crime hotspots, for example, based on drug arrest data, then you're making a rookie mistake because, and there are no police departments that I work with who, are, who make this kind of level stupidity because that's what you can find drug arrest wherever you send the cops. So it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. We've long known that you shouldn't use drug arrests, you shouldn't use any police originated data like stop information for who to focus on or who to prioritize. That being said, I'm sure there are still police departments that do it. And so that some of these criticisms that people come up with aren't unreasonable in the light that some departments really don't do their due diligence in understanding this. The other bias we have to understand within the system is one of the most robust and reliable biases, especially in big cities, predominantly in big cities that I've studied in, on the US East Coast, is the bias around violent victimization. So in Philadelphia, I can tell you, the black and white population is around the same. It's a few percent difference, but on the whole, it's not that different. But if you're black, it's horrific. You are three times more likely to be a victim of violence, and you're nearly four times more likely to be a victim of gun crime. Now, if you're the police commissioner and you're the mayor, what do you do with that information? If people are complaining about over-policing, you know, what's the solution? Not to send police there, because what you're going to get is Compared to city rates, you're going to get an overabundance of police activity on the black community. That's the part that I find I struggle with when it's really easy for people in the activist community to use naive statistics. They'll look at the demographics of the entire city and then they'll say, well, based on the demographics of the entire city, the police are doing three times as many stops of black people than white people, or they're doing three times as many arrests as black people and white people. And they will compare to this naive citywide statistic. And that's not really a reasonable metric because the starting point is, I think, what the police department are trying to do to reduce violent victimization. And that doesn't mean pulling back from black areas or put back from minority areas. The challenging part about sort of hotspots policing is hotspots policing doesn't tell you what to do. It just tells you where. At that point, we bring human beings into the decision who decide what to do. Now, there are many different things you can do in a crime hotspot, some of which might be really beneficial, some of which are going to be harmful. Again, some of which will be effective and some of which won't be effective. Again, coming back to Thomas Sewell, there are no solutions. There are trade-offs. You could increase stops, which happened during the Philadelphia Foot Patrol experiment. There's a trade-off that has a negative impact on the community. Whereas the benefit of that violent crime decreased by 23%. It's a lot of people not getting shot, robbed and murdered. And so... What does the evidence tell us about intelligence-led policing? Like, is it something worth investing in or should we be looking at other avenues? <laughs> well, again, that almost invites the standard academic answer. It depends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. In the second round of reimagining policing, I think everybody is looking for that silver bullet. I would like that perfect solution that has no negative implications. Well, I don't think it really exists. There are trade-offs. You know, you decide to spend more money on one thing than another with the hope that spending money on B is give you better results than spending money on A. But because we live in complex social environments, it's really difficult to know where those things are. The evidence overall for focusing on serious repeat offenders is pretty good. Uh, if you go back to the congressional report that was headed by Larry Sherman, but had many luminaries like John Eck and Sean Bushway 
Doris McKenzie and many other great names involved in it that was published in 1998. We already knew then that there was benefit to focus on a serious repeat offenders. We know that there's benefit in crime hotspots. It's one of the best researched areas of policing. And we know it's really effective. There are dozens of studies. There are only two or three that have really not found a result. The overwhelming preponderance of evidence benefits it. Reducing repeat victimization. Fantastic story out of the UK from the 1980s on a housing project of just targeting people who are multiple victims and improving their crime prevention in their homes. Drop burglary across the whole housing project by huge amounts. So we know there's good scholarly evidence to support these things. Does that mean they should be used uniformly and invested in more so? That depends on the return on the investment. There's a principle of proportionality here, which is if I'm using surveillance resources and wiretaps, I really want to be going after serious repeat organized criminals. I don't want to be doing it on the numbnuts who might be selling a bag of weed on the, on the corner, okay? So should they be expanded? Yes, perhaps. No, if it's going to be towards targets who frankly aren't worth the time and the investment, or there may be better ways to divert that person rather than just send them into the criminal justice system, which is what policing interventions tend to do with the, you know, even though there are, there's an increase in diversion work at the moment. And I think that's really interesting and that's worth looking into more. All right. So speaking of evaluations and evidence, this term evidence-based has become you know, a big word in criminology and kind of a buzzword that people are really interested in and wanting to look at. And as a correction scholar, evidence-based interventions and programming is all the rage right now. And it means different things to different people. And so here at the Criminology Academy, we love definitions, which you may have gotten that hint by now. But what does evidence-based mean to you, especially when it comes to policing? Okay. So generally, I use the idea that an evidence-based approach, it wasn't mine, it was a definition that came from some folk in the UK, but an evidence-based policing approach involves police officers and staff creating, reviewing, and using the best available evidence to inform and challenge policies, practices, and decisions. Now, what I like about this definition is it's not some airy-fairy academic theoretical concept. It's police officers and staff who are involved in the production of knowledge in the same way that evidence-based medicine really only works if medical practitioners are involved in it. We simply don't have enough policing scholars, not just people interested in studying policing, which has become toxic in the last few years, for sure. It's hard to find a policing scholar these days but also policing scholars with a skill set to actually provide an evaluation skill set to be able to actually help police departments answer the questions, is this actually helping? And so we are limited by the availability of researchers. So what we end up with is that we have to put more of the onus on police officers and staff. So it's not just using the evidence base. Are they familiar with the evidence on gun buyback programs? Should they be supporting them? The answer is no. Should they be doing hotspots policing? Yes. Yeah, but also reviewing what the evidence is and understanding how it might work in their context, but also creating it. There are so many things that we don't know about what works and what doesn't in policing. And I, it's interesting, this phrase, what works, what doesn't, what's promising, which came from the congressional report. At some point, we have to add in there what's potentially harmful as well. What are, how we, some of the aspects of what we might do in policing might actually make things worse. 
And it's hard to say that. I think people come into policing like any public service with good intentions. But that's one of the hard parts about engaging in evidence-based policing is you go and help police departments, as I often do. And okay, I can tell you whether this works or not. Are you okay with the fact that it might tell you it's made things worse? And you know, it's easy to say that as an academic because my career is not on the line. Mm. You go and say that to a policymaker, it's like, oh yeah, well, I mean, I, I could only get fired. That's their livelihood and their mortgage and their kids going to school and you know their holiday in Cancun. You've taken away all of that from them because you found that what they did. So that you have to understand that that's why that sometimes it's difficult to get evidence-based scholarship up and running because those of us who sit on the outside don't share or any of the burden or the risk. So we've got a lot to do in policing. I love the idea of its police officers and police staff getting involved in it. Inform and challenge policies, practices, and decisions. I often say that there are only two things police officers hate, how we're doing it right now, and change. So it's like, well, this really sucks. Have you got a better way of doing it? Yeah, maybe. Should we test that? Oh, I'm not so sure. So it's very challenging. But evidence-based policing really is vitally important to moving the entire criminal justice system, system evidence-based policy forward. We know that there are some really landmark examples of things that are harmful, that are evidence of the failure or the fallacy of good intention-based policy. Scared straight is one example. We now know, I just published recently more evidence that gun buybacks don't work. Now, they're not a huge ask, they're not a huge drain on the city, but they do detract from having people think about more effective policies. And that's just as bad. So yeah, it's, it has become flavor of the month. I think there are some within academia, some within criminology are not fans of it uh, because there is a hierarchy of evidence. There is a hierarchy of research evidence. We know some things better at discovering evidence than others. And scholars who do not do that kind of work are a little bit miffed and kind of pushing back against evidence-based policy. And I understand that. But I really think if we are to provide a service to the community, a lot of us are at public universities or partly public funded universities. And if part of our role is to help the community and improve the crime situation, I think we have an obligation to try and provide the best evidence on what works and what doesn't to improve public policy. Yeah, Great. I feel like we could devote an entire episode or even a series of episodes just on this evidence based term and like mm-hmm. what counts as evidence, what is the hierarchy of evidence, but And the challenges of working with policymakers and practitioners with evidence based. Because, Jerry, like you said, I've run into a lot of people in the corrections area who they are very supportive, but they do run into this question of, well, what happens if we find that our program is actually making things worse? Like, that's not going to look great for us, but we want to do better. And so they run into this kind of headbutting of, what do we do? How do we go about this? So what, like, a few of the things that I've done. So I've been very lucky. I've had the opportunity to be at the big table in some of the policy makers environments, which is a real privilege. And some of the things I've kind of said is there's always a degree of negotiation. As I used to say to police commissioner Chuck Ramsey when he was in Philadelphia, look, if I find something bad, I'll tell you. If I find something good, I'll tell everybody. What I actually found was that people in policing are, are used to bad news. What they really hate are surprises. So they hate academics that come in 
rape and pillage them of all their data. And then two years later, they read an academic journal article that tells them they suck. Now, what I've often found is that when you go back to policymakers and you say, well, look, here are the findings, what they can often do is provide context and nuance that allow you to understand the nature of why it failed. An example I'll come to, I did a study of shootings in Philadelphia, Holly George Renger, back in around 2007, 2008. And it was about police officers after a shooting, putting a marked police car on that corner and whether it reduced retaliatory shootings and other shootings in the neighborhood. And it didn't. And I went back and spoke to the police. I said, well, look, here are the results. And the deputy commissioner at the time, her name was Pat Fox. She was able to say, well, fair enough, but here is why it took place. And she actually gave me enough information and detail that she didn't mind me publishing it. She was okay with the idea that for my living, I have to publish. She just didn't want it coming out without some context for why it failed. She was used to the bad news, but needed a way to explain it. And I think if we approach policymakers like equivalent research partners, we can often find a way to be able to publish even negative results in a way that aren't necessarily career limiting for them and allow us to, for the field to know what doesn't work. And I think we just have to treat them reasonably. It's when we do hit and runs and we just publish two years later and we completely screw people. I think at the very least that's discourteous and borderline unprofessional. The other side to it is, is that sometimes you can't get high level research done. There just isn't the political will for things like randomized control trials, not the evidence. The definition is for police officers and staff to create, review, and use the best available evidence. And the emphasis there is on best. And sometimes I've been in situations where I've said, really, it'd be great to study this as a randomized control trial. And the decision makers have said, I just don't think we have the political capital or desire to be able to push that through. So there's always a degree of compromise. So you might not get the best, but you might be able to do research that's good enough and helps the field learn and at least learn something out of the experience. There is, a, you know, as Jose said, there's a hierarchy of evidence and we could ruin everybody's podcast listening by talking about that. But I've had to come down the hierarchy of evidence a few times because it's just not been possible to do the study I would like to do. But the study's still been beneficial and helpful because it's at least above a kind of threshold level. At least I've been able to find comparison groups or areas. So good enough research isn't a bad thing. Right. So like pretty much since like I got here, I was working on then here at CU Boulder, started working on this evaluation of this gang reduction program in Denver. And the program manager was you know, very like evidence-based oriented. He wanted the program to be evaluated and we got federal money. We implemented a randomized control trial, but of course we had to make some concessions. So it wasn't like a perfectly implemented randomized control trial, you know, like it wasn't double blind. We were randomizing at not an optimal point in time. You know, people were telling us that we should randomize after the people that had been referred to the program had been vetted by the administrators. But they're like, no, we can't do that. Like we can't ask our outreach workers to develop relationships with these kids and then tell them, sorry, they've been randomized for a control group. So we're like, okay, so we'll do randomization at another point in time. And so, you know, we worked with the agency to implement the best study that we could do that satisfied their needs, still met the standard that we had set for ourselves in the evaluation. But then like um, not even a few months into the evaluation, 
the manager leaves because he was playing hardball with city council. And so he, so he leaves. The position is vacant for several months. COVID hits. An interim manager gets put in place. She suspends the study for eight months until a new manager comes in. And so it's, you know, the, and we still conducted the best study that we could. That's just how it goes. Jose, I'm laughing because almost everything you said was triggering for me. I think I'm going to have to go and have a bit of a lie down now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We've, I mean, I've been there so many times with these kinds of studies. COVID, I, had a, I think the best way to think about so many of these things is you take your, especially when you design these really good experiments, the first thing you do when you get the grant is you take the project proposal paperwork, you put it in a metal trash can, you set a light to it, and then whatever pieces of paper you can pull out of the smoldering wreck of it becomes what ends up being implemented. There's a general von Molke, and my apologies to the German-Austrian-Prussian listeners who I probably killed the description of his or the pronunciation of his name from the late 1800s has said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And I don't mean the um, he was a military general, but I don't think really in terms of enemy, in terms of you know, the community, but more just, the, you know, as soon as you design this perfect experiment, you put it out into the field, it's the real world. And, you know, theoretical people just get this wonderful environment where they get to sit in their office. So those of us who work in the real world, it can be an absolute dumpster fire. And I've had similar experiences with key members of the team, a police chief who was a supporter, resigned. Another member of the team, day one, is like, I'm going to go and join another police department. Other people, you know, contracts failed. The university dropped the ball on some paperwork and we had to stop field work. COVID came in. Fire and brimstone, cats and dogs marrying each other. It was just chaos from start to finish. Yeah. And you fight through it and you do the best study you can. And a couple of times I've completely abandoned an RCT, but we ended up doing qualitative research and learning huge amounts from hundreds of hours of field work in places like Kensington and Philadelphia. And the nice part about qualitative research in that regard is while it's not really often looked at as sort of robust research evidence of what works and what doesn't, it can hugely inform your understanding of when you do get results, why they work and why they don't. And mm -hmm. I think that's a key part from the lesson that I got from Pat Fox, the deputy commissioner, to understand why a priorities corner program in Philadelphia didn't work because there were implementation issues. And you only learn that from doing qualitative research or doing field observations. We've used that in Philadelphia. In my work, we'd used you know, hundreds of hours of qualitative observations, just sitting in a police van, de helping deal with people who are in an opioid crisis to inform projects that we have now just completed, which did become a, a relatively robust and randomized control trial. And you learn from this and eventually you get better at anticipating where all the, uh, all the landmines are in the research process. So it's never wasted. Absolutely. Okay, so something that we're curious about is you mentioned you're a policing scholar in the United States, but you were a police officer in England before you became an academic. You mentioned that you've done work with law enforcement in countries like El Salvador, all over the U.S. And so we're curious about how really how American policing stacks up to policing in other countries are some of the issues and criticisms that surround American police officers unique to the U.S., or is that something that you find in other countries as well? Wow. Again, you've come up with a question that will last. Okay, for listeners, the, the remainder of this podcast will be 12 hours in multiple volumes and episodes. To be, 
even think about trying to address that one. So I think if there's a key piece to this, policing is different everywhere. So in the United States, you have 17 to 18,000 police departments. About half of them have got 10 sworn officers or less. We've got a few big cities that look very much like other countries. Uh, other countries, you've got places where they have a national police. In El Salvador, they have the PNC, which is a national police. In New Zealand, they have a national police. In Japan, they have a national police. In Denmark, they have a mix. In Canada, they have a mix. They have the RCMP and they have provincial and they have city police. It's a mess. There is no rhyme or reason to how the policing world is, is organized. So to make comparisons is really very difficult. The policing environment, wherever you go within the United States, even within the region, you know, I'm doing work right now with the New Jersey State Police, and they're dealing with all these cities that have very different policing environments. So the environment is very different politically, socially, legally. It just all looks different. What I think is often fascinating is that I'll go to community meetings in San Salvador and El Salvador, and I'll go to community meetings in Philadelphia, and people are often complaining about the same stuff. So I got to meet with members of the community in Honduras, and you think, okay, they're going to be talking about police corruption and shootings. But then after a while, it gets down to, and the traffic's really bad. The traffic is really bad. And I'm going, oh, that's what people are saying in Kensington and Philadelphia. But it's because it's what grinds people down on a day-to-day -day basis. And so even though the policing environments are very different, what's surprising, and I've been very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to work around the world, be a police officer for more than a decade in the UK, and then to travel the world. And people very kindly have me come and speak in other countries. And I always try and go on ride-alongs where I can and go and get some experience in those places. But what's fascinating is that even though the policing environment is different, the criminal environment is often similar. So people still take an opportunity is the one big driver for crime. People take advantage of criminal opportunities. It doesn't mean that even if they're relatively wealthy compared to people in another country, people who are relatively poor in the United States are wealthy compared to people who are relatively poor in El Salvador. People who are wealthy in the United States will take advantage of criminal opportunities if they think they can get away with it. So the criminal environment is largely driven by, as, a, as an environmental criminologist, uh, routing activities theory, rational choice, opportunity theories. And that's incredibly similar where you go. Now, the social environment changes to some degree, but the bottom line is there's lots of people who are willing to try out crime, sometimes at a low level, sometimes at a high level, and they take advantages in weaknesses in our systems and opportunities. And that's incredibly similar. So it means that lessons that we learn in one place just because the policing environment's different doesn't mean that we can't translate those lessons to be learned in other places because the criminal environment and the criminal opportunity structure isn't that dissimilar. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it makes me, because you do trainings in all of these different places, right? With police departments? Yeah, well, a, a chunk of it is I reached full professor and I have no aspirations to become a dean for a couple of reasons. <laughs> Firstly, nobody in their right mind would ever have me as a dean. And secondly, it just looks like incredible amounts of tedious paperwork. So I thought, well, what do I want to do for the rest of my career? I really enjoy the opportunity to work with practitioners. I probably spend more time with practitioners than with academics. And so, well, I'd like to improve and help the policing field. So it's not just about publishing another journal article in a journal that is going to be behind the paywall that nobody can ever read. So I try and as much as possible to take some of the lessons that we've learned about how to think about problem-oriented policing, how to think about intelligence-led policing, 
reducing harm in communities and evidence-based policing. And take those two policing groups and communities, and I do training around the world, and try and help them better understand, so make their careers more rewarding and help them sort of get to their retirement thinking, actually, I didn't do a bad job. So my writing style has changed as well. So since I became a a full professor, I'm now trying to write academic books that for a practitioner community. So the couple of very recent books I've written, Reducing Crime, A Companion for Police Leaders, and Evans-Based Policing the Basics. They're small books, a lot of pictures for people who are busy and have got stuff going on. But I try to write in a style that makes it accessible because we've all been through the agony. You know, it's, it's similar for working with undergraduates. The professor that assigns an academic journal article really is, that's, that, yeah, that's almost malicious. So, you know, reality is that the practitioner community who are doing the actual work to try and keep us safe are not reading scholarly work because we don't make it accessible to them. Now, we can either bitch and moan as academics about that and how uninformed they are, or we can actually help them and reach out to them in ways that are take scholarly academic work, but convey it to them in a way that makes it accessible to them. And that for me is podcasts. It's writing in a way that's much more accessible and it's getting out face-to-face and training. And I travel a lot. I'm a very, very understanding partner, Shelley, bless her. Um, But it's getting out there and actually kind of selling this stuff so that they hopefully can have the benefit on the communities that they hope they would. Yeah. Absolutely. And that just got one last question on this topic. When you're doing these trainings, if, you know, the policing environment is different, but the crime environment is similar, are your trainings pretty similar when you go to different countries or do you change them a lot depending on context and culture? A little of column A, a little of column B. So the principles and the ideas of how people work and function, very, very similar. Police departments, well, they seem very different, actually hierarchy organized. They're often organized around geography and space. They defer accountability to field commanders who are in charge of a geographic area. I mean, it's a tough job if you think about it. If you spent your life being a patrol officer dealing with individual cases, and then you might become a detective dealing with an individual case, and then you become a sergeant, it's just mainly supervising your officers. And then suddenly you become a lieutenant or a captain. And now you're in charge of a geographic area of all the crime for in a space with 50,000 people in it. What about your previous career prepared you for that? It's, I mean, it's brutal. So I try to do my work pitch towards mid to senior level people who are just trying to learn how best to work in a new environment of their leadership role. So the principles are often very similar. That being said, where possible, I try and tweak what I do. Obviously, if I'm talking about El Salvador, then I'm not going to draw on examples that require significant resources or an effective criminal justice system. In actual fact, there's value in pointing out to people sometimes the limitations of the criminal justice system as a way to encourage people or help them understand how severe those limits are. And the range of those limits is different. But on the whole, we can't rely on the criminal justice system. So they have to think about more problem-oriented solutions to crime problems because they're much more effective. They rely less on policing resources And they don't require a criminal justice system to really be fully effective and functioning because in many countries in Central America and other parts of the world, you simply don't have that resource to draw on. So yeah, there's a degree of tweaking that takes place because you want to be respectful of your audience. Right. So we want to close out the podcast by asking you, so I think what people are going to realize, this is a little bit of a crossover, not in like a true sense, but kind of talking about 
disseminating our work in a way that is accessible to people. You are the host of your own podcast, Reducing Crime, which launched about five years ago or so. Unlike us, you actually have a mix of practitioners and academics where we mainly focus on academics. But, you know, first, what motivated you to start the Reducing Crime podcast? And then, you know, one of the things that you were just talking about is how as academics, we tend to be pretty bad about disseminating our information to the public. And so just maybe some suggestions or advice that you might have on how we can be better about it. But don't be starting podcast people. You know, Jerry and us are staking our claim in, in this area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, congratulations on your podcast. It seems to be going from strength to strength. I had no idea where the Reducing Crime podcast would be. I just finished writing a book, a Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders. It was deliberately sort of, un it's, I don't want to make it sound like it's not thoughtful and academic, but I wanted to write for a very different audience because I saw that, you know, when you work in policing, you get some training at the academy. And then at the end of your career, if you make it to the high levels of the organization, you might get to go to some seminars and some networking events and some conferences. But the people who do the real work in the middle career stages have a lot of leadership and have a lot of decision-making about crime, get next to nothing. So I wanted to write for them. But then I th started thinking, well, also, how do I reach people with giving them more information, keep them up to date, or just getting them more engaged? And so I thought about doing a podcast. I had no idea if anybody was ever going to listen to it. I mean, fortunately, I have phenomenal guests because without that, it would just disappear. I mean, people have thought listening to an hour of me rambling to you guys now, can you imagine endless episodes but yeah, so I'm in, I'm in mistake the year of the Reducing Crime podcast. By the time we hit the summer, it's astounding to be, by the time we hit the summer, I'll have hit a quarter of a million downloads. Wow, congratulations. just astounding yeah. to me that people are prepared to put up with it. And <laughs> what I find is interesting is I get messages from practitioners who find, always find a nugget or something useful because I have really interesting guests. And sometimes I can see people use it for class because you can see spikes in listens for certain episodes. But yeah, I wanted to make it as different as possible. I tried to have a different episode every time. So if you get an academic one episode, you get a police practitioner in the next. And I try to focus on people who do practical, realistic, useful stuff. But just to make it as different and as imaginative as possible. It does help that, you know, being a little bit more older and, and senior, I know lots of people and I get to travel because I like to do face-to-face -face podcasts. Got a fantastic. It's all based on the fantastic range of very international guests, everything from academics to undercover officers. I've recently had an officer who was undercover with white supremacists, and then you go from that to an academic talking about hotspots policing or social network analysis. It just jumps around. It's great fun, but yeah, it does help. I can mix up my audience a little bit more probably because I do spend a lot of time traveling. And I guess to paraphrase Tyrion Lannister, I know people and I drink. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's been great, and it's been fun, and it, it it tells you something about, I suppose, how hungry the field is. If we look at academic citation counts for journal articles, and then compare that, and hundreds of thousands of people listening to a podcast, it tells you something about where people are accessing information, and that leads Jose into your second question. If if I can carry on, kind of rolling on, we have to engage more with policymakers. It's absolutely great to meet to get emails or to get text messages or direct messages from people saying, I'm going to try that in my police department because of something they heard on a podcast. 
And unless they're actually doing a study, you never hear them say that, oh, I read this journal article. I, I paid $70 to get it because it was behind a paywall. And it was just, for, you know, we don't as academics do a good job. It, it requires criminologists, I think, to do research that's actually practically useful. And I think that's a problem in the field. There's a lot of es esoteric navel gazing. But, you know, if you ask practitioners whether they can use it, there's just not enough of that work out there. And then it means it makes a difference that we actually reach out to them to make it accessible. If I can, I can give you an example of some work that I recently did. I evaluated a gun buyback program in Philadelphia with a graduate student of mine. And we published the study, but, you know, it's in a medical journal, uh, injury prevention, and probably a few practitioners, highly unlikely anybody's going to read it. So, well, okay, that's nice. But we also wrote an op-ed piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer. So a month after the journal article came out, I had an op-ed piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer, where she said, you know, here's the study, here's the reality of it's just not working here in Philadelphia. But if we want to do something different, here are some suggestions. A month after that came out, a city councillor submitted a resolution and had it signed off requiring the city to examine the St. Louis consent to search program, which is one of the things I suggested to the city to explore and examine its feasibility. So October study comes out, November an op-ed, and then December comes a city resolution. Now, I don't see that happening enough, which is a shame because I think there are scholars out there doing really good work. But if it just disappears into academic journal articles only, and we still have to do those mm -hmm. for our credibility, if we want to influence policy, that's not where to be. But, you know, I think a lot of academics are also not that fussed about influencing policy, which I also think is a shame. So I'm kind of staring and go, why are you doing this if it's not to actually make the system better? Yeah, that's great that you saw change and that seems very quick. So you know, what an op-ed can do to really make a difference. Right. It's, I mean, I've not spoken to the council member, but it's got to be more than coincidence, right? It, it's got to be, I yeah. would say. I don't yeah. think that council member suddenly thought of a program for the 1990s and thought that's what we need and completely independently. <laughs> Perhaps they did. Yeah. I, so who knows? But yeah. Yeah. Was it Sherlock Holmes that said there are no such thing as coincidences? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, the policy world I obviously have how bias creeps into everything I say. I'm a bias because I get to work with practitioners and policymakers. So I think that work's important. I'm an ex-police officer, so I think that work's important. Obviously, my bias creeps into all of this kind of stuff. But it would, I think we don't do a good enough job in academia of training people to actually think about having policy influence. And so there's a whole field, there are whole areas of criminology where people make a very tidy career just shouting from a distance going, you guys suck without really having, you know, stepping out and taking a risk and making concrete suggestions or making any effort to be in the room and actually help people get better and make better decisions. And honestly, if you just shout at people from afar, that doesn't really encourage them to make better policy suggestions. That's not how people function. You have to be in the room. You have to gain their trust. You have to understand their world and understand the challenges and the pressures and the constraints and a lot of the times the compromises that they have to make just to get anything done, then when you can do all of that, you might be able to help them make a slightly better decision. And I think we could do with more people in academia who who try and do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect note to end the podcast in on. Thank you, Jerry, so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. It was 
a great conversation. Is there anything you'd like to plug? I know we talked about your podcast, Reducing Crime. Is guessing that's available anywhere people can listen to podcasts? Absolutely. Yeah. The Reducing Crime podcast is available anywhere. And if people are interested more about evidence-based policing, I have a relatively cheap book that came out and a website to support it. So you can find more information about that at evidencebasedpolicing.net. And if people have any questions, where can they find you? There are two Jerry Ratcliffe's on the internet. I'm really easy to find. There are two Jerry Ratcliffe's on the internet. And the other is a uh, sports writer and a journalist from Virginia. And I'm afraid that's not me. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find on just about every social media. Though I will say I, I keep some of it to myself. So Facebook and uh, Instagram are for my private life, but Twitter or X or whatever the hell we're calling it these days. Yeah, yeah I'm, that's, that's yeah. the public facing Jerry. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Awesome. It was great speaking with you, meeting you virtually. Likewise. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. time.